I still don't know how to talk about this episode. It's like every time my brain goes there, I or I listen to a piece of it or whatever. Like I, I still I get I've gotten the chills now four or five times. And I know that's like an insane statement. It's insane to even have that occur, but like that that's what's going on here with, with Mercy Lee Bell. And we cover really everything um, in the episode, so I'm not even gonna attempt to go there. But what I will say is that this episode, I obviously have um, not included the intro. And there's, you know what? <laughs> there's not a, an outro on it either. Uh, and that is for a variety of different reasons. The one that I'll mention it as being like top of mind is that you know, I don't want to lose anybody that's looking at the total time of a podcast and, you know, is going to be turned off by that. But, you know, I there's a lot of work involved to leveling up. And sometimes I, I feel like we've done ourselves a disservice with these like bite-sized whatever thing. There, nothing comes, nothing of any value comes for free. And you know, time invested into a certain place um, is is one of those things that that we we give up in exchange for uh, better things to come. And I'm also the person like I I've nobody loves music more than me, friends. And I gave up music for a year at, while I was learning to sell so that I can focus. Um, and I did only like nonfiction books in my car on CD, right? So I don't have a lot of sympathy for anybody that's like, I can't do 15 minutes or past 15 minutes. However, I do. I don't want anybody to not press play based on that. But anyway, so that's why no intro and outro today. Um, Mercy also gets her own music, as you can hear, because that's the type of woman that she is. And the name of Mercy's song is Auto Magic. One word, Auto Magic. And I can't, I don't think there's anything that's ever been more fitting by way of a name. What's in a name? I um, have done zero editing on this audio file, like not one. I'm not even taking out the the banter at the beginning before we officially start. So this is as real as it gets, friends. Um, and this is also an exercise for me to let go of my um, perfectionist ways of of being, which are not as deep and far past in into, uh, or I'm not as deep into my recovery journey on being a perfectionist as I previously thought. So yeah, every word, not touched at all. And it just, even that makes it that much more special. So friends, yeah, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna put this out here, friends, and we'll see what happens. Anyone that is wise enough to press play and listen with an open mind and an open heart, ready to do some work yeah I <laughs> I'm not even gonna try to finish that sentence we're just gonna leave that right there so with no with without further ado my my great new friend Mercy Lee Bell on this computer let me just make sure my settings were recording just want to make sure the settings carried over mm-mm-mm-mm Testing, testing, one, two, three, peaks and valleys, valleys. <laughs> you know, my number one complaint about Zoom is that it says preferences in the nav bar and settings when you open up preferences. Just want Zoom. Naming conventions. Yes, they are. They will get you every time. Every time. Okay, great. We're good. We're recording a separate audio file.
How do how does my audio look on your side? Sounds fantastic. All right. Excellent. All right. Well, we may as well just dive right flipping in. Mercy, welcome to Revenue Real. I, I, I mean, excited isn't a strong enough word to describe um, how I'm feeling right now, but it's, 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 yeah, I, I'm just going to leave it at that. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I know. I wish everyone could see our faces because there is that, like, uh, I'm getting the feeling of inching up the roller coaster you know, and it's that anticipation, like the exhilaration also like really don't know what's about to happen. So, uh, well, I'm, I'm for one, I'm glad that no one's seeing our faces because one, your camera like looks fantastic and, and in the move, I don't even know where my camera is. And also that mic stand. Okay. Like I've been eyeing them down. This is, yeah, this is going to be a thing I'm, I'm experiencing hardware envy. Um, but at the same time, feeling exceptionally motivated because you set the bar so damn high for all of us, mercy. So that said, ah, conversations about uncomfortable conversations. My goodness gracious, we have so many to choose from. And I'm interested in hearing where you want to go, but I'd also, I'd like for you to share with the listener, our listeners, all five of them, how, how did you (laughs) get, how did you get into, into sales? Yeah, I want to, it's such a, I want to answer this question more honestly than I ever have. I have a really tidy story for you, which I often tell people, which is that my sales career began as a freshman at Stanford. I was completely broke. Um, I'd had a you know person in my family recently overdose. And when I was going off to college, I, um, I like just didn't have any money, resources, or support, or at least I didn't feel like I did. And so the first flyer I saw was for the student call center. If y'all remember how colleges used to have their current students call alumni for fundraising. And I saw something about a bonus and it had like three digits. I was like, like, it was like $300. And I said, I want that job. And it was the promise of a bonus. It was like the promise of an A plus. It was a promise of being loved. It was a promise of being good enough. It was a promise of being able to buy my own books. And I always start, that's where my career in sales began because it was 2008. And this is a wall street crash. And I'm cold calling people who just work at Lehman Brothers. I don't know what that is. And I'm asking them to renew their gift for $5,000. And it's like, you know, want to hear some rejection, definitely some racist comments, yeah. a million and one interesting thoughts and body sensations from people like be, be in the that, boiler room of a university. Yeah, that's the place to do it. I, uh, oh my gosh. And during the financial or during the crash, like that, that period was no flipping joke. And I, I feel like it's almost, it's, it's too far removed now, uh, but I feel you as someone that experienced that period from a, I, I guess I'm a little bit older um, than you, but barely, like barely, barely. However, minutes really, we were born minutes. minutes I, I mean, I started selling in, in diapers. So like all the, all the <laughs> dates that I give about, about my length of time and, you know, knowing where the bodies are buried, um, that is, that's because I was, I was, you know, I started in the crib really is what happened. So, but that said also Stanford, that was cool. I didn't know that until I looked at your profile before this. Yeah. Uh, where- that's the tidy story. Stanford is not where we learn to sell, right? I did not learn to sell at 18. I learned to sell as a kid. Like, it's funny you mentioned the crib, all of the things around connection, empathy, curiosity, hypervigilance from childhood, looking around to see what others needed me to be, trying to understand what were motivations. All of that is um, 
is out of childhood. Mm-hmm. And I would go so far as to say, like, there's a, there's a more correlation to like maybe our family units and the lessons from our, our caregivers and our, and, and school and those moments on the playground that influence how we sell. I mean, you know, well, to sell is human. And so let's start with that. And this can apply to how we convince um, children or nieces to, you know, eat their broccoli or go to bed or finish their home, you know, so every aspect of um, life really involves selling. And I am so fortunate to have been desensitized to the stigma of that word selling, being raised by a, a salesperson turned broker. Um which, so I was only part getting about, you know, uh, you know, I was primed from a very, very young age to be, you know, just a machine in this context. However, um, I, what you said about what you said about the values that we form during childhood is such a power. And I know it was in the context of, of selling, right. And, and how to operate in the world. I'm sure from your perspective, everyone listeners at mercy is a beautiful, beautiful, strong black woman. And so like there's extra for for those that are, um, you know, familiar with intersectionality, you know, what mercy said just became four times more impactful about learning how to operate and just be in a world where you have to, you know, compensate at four or five, 10 X, Um, and for those that don't know what intersectionality is, that would be a great Google exercise, right? Consult the Oracle. Okay. So mercy that said, when you spoke about the values that we assign it, uh, during childhood, like, I can't believe you just mentioned that because it's been something that's been so on my mind in, as I journal about the value judgments that I formed in childhood, particularly as it relates to, Malcolm Gladwell's talking with strangers and the experiences that I had growing up in a town that was so corrupt that children were dying. Cancer water, cancer cluster. So it's a super fun site now, right? So think Aaron Brockovich. Also, the superintendent of schools um, was high, was one of the most corrupt. So he's still in federal prison and, and has been there since I graduated. I started high school, excuse me, graduated college. So 2005, but anyway, so still in prison was in bed with the water company. The the last school that they built was, um, named Sibagagi, right? The water, uh, company like Hinkley or in Hinkley, I forget the name, whatever, but I was raised in a time and place where there was always this undercurrent of who's next, what child is next. It was spoken about in the hallways in the schools. It was a thing on the buses. And so, you know, in many ways, it's not the same, right. As being raised or having like a black child that where you're physically scared for their person, 100% of the time, right. Different thing. However, what is unique for me is that I know what it's like to fear for your life as a child. I know what it's like to watch death be the output of corruption and lack of change and lack of transparency and more fun 
and notable is that my parents were very active um, locally. And so my dad and his friends and my mom and her, like all of them would take turns running for school board and just, but when it was my dad's turn to run, and then I'll stop with this tangent, a couple (laughs) things happened. One, it was when I learned about current events because, and really how, how in bed the media organizations, especially legacy um, existing power structures can be because, you know, in sixth grade, the way that they teach, at least back in the day, the way that I was taught about current events, you know, everyone in the class once a week would have to pick an article, right? Cut it out, read it. as like come up with some kind of synopsis and pre- like present it back to the class. The teach it, it was so awful that year, the things that were, they were writing about my dad, that my teacher had to make a rule, no more articles about Amy's father. Number one, number two, there was the, the matter of the pipe bomb that went off at 3 a.m. in front of the house, right? And this was just some brainchild. It was the child of, of somebody else that was on the board, put the, t- the pipe bomb in the wrong car. So it was in our neighbor's car, but woken up right in the middle of the night by an explosion. Wow. And again, children are dying. But at the same time, I also saw my parents have a phenomenal time and have fun doing the right thing. Now, the moral of the story for me is that I have assigned, I assigned some really like strong feelings around both corruption and also like I think of sales bosses that are not acknowledging the harm that are happening on sales floors by way of just you know how it goes. And, but in my brain, I have always connected that harm that I saw being done to those around me with someone could die. So, yeah. And you bring up a really important point, which is like those early formative memories. I mean, they contextualize for some people, justice is an ideal. And it sounds like even for you, like justice or like writing corruption, like that's equivalent of like survival, like avoiding death. Like it's a big, it's a big, important conversation. And for some people, it's just not, it's like a word they heard their parents use once a year at a fundraiser that they attended or a charity dinner, or it was a word associated with rebellion or dis unrest. And so then that word has this other connotation. Um, and here's how these value judgments have not served me friends. I, and so I'm now unraveling them, right? And so what you do as you figure out a value judgment that is no one form during childhood based on things that are not logical, but now that I'm aware, right, I've been able to really kind of journal about them, but why this didn't serve me during my career, let's say six, seven years ago, was because I wasn't able to associate the anger that I felt when, when people were being harmed around me and I'll even, I worked in access to justice shit. Like I was at Westlaw, I was working with court data. Like we, I've been working around the justice system and government for a long time. And I would, I was not able to consistently maintain the support of stakeholders because I was so hyper vigilant, I guess, you know what I'm saying? And this is all, I'm using very, very nice words here, everyone, but, and talk about vigilance sucks in case you don't know what that word is. Also consult your Oracle. It's a horrific state of being. 
I, all my sales career was in a state of hypervigilance for those first like five years. And it's a state of exhaustion. Like the biological, like implications of hypervigilance are constantly being on alert, uh, constantly looking in your peripheral, like metaphorically and literally in your peripheral, like what's going on around me and never feeling very safe. Can't well, be state and hypervigilant. <laughs> well, so it's so funny because I have one of the things to, to one of the questions is what's the opposite of wellness to, to once we get into take for care or take care, excuse me. Yeah. But I, I love that you just said that because psychological, how do we hit psychological safety on sales floors while still maintaining um, a degree of control on the revenue generating aspect of things, which is a big question mark. So we may or may not come back to that, but more interesting, not more interestingly, more to the point. Um, there's, uh, the cortisol, what cortisol, that's the brain chemical that is dropped into your. So when I think of the default brain, which is my word for those that have not done a ton of work yet, on, you know, they're rewiring, right? We all have default brains, friends, and think like caveman, and we're going to fight really hard to avoid pain and, and whatever. So there's a bunch of implications. However, the, the biological aspects of not having psychological safety or being in a state of hypervigilance also means that you're, you've got a steady drip of cortisol being pushed through your body. And I think of Simon Sinek's start with why do you remember that video where he talked about all the different chemicals and how they, and so when that I don't, I am not a scientist by any stretch of the imagination and I'm venturing from into talk directly out of my ass right now. So (laughs) let's be curious about that. However, like there, I, I think that when there's gotta be some kind of studies now that are connecting like cancer, right? after the long-term effects, like the wear and tear that this puts on your body, on your joints, on your, like clenching your teeth, your, your, everything's connected. Everything is connected. And so the hypervigilance, not only does it piss people off around you (laughs) or at least not maybe, and that's on a bad day, but even on a good day, it just, it's not able, it's not the best option, but more importantly, like I was, because I was unaware of the value judgments that I had formed based on these experiences as a child. Yep. I did couldn't communicate. Well, one, I wasn't able to stop myself. I didn't understand that my, the way that my hypervigilance and the seriousness that I was placing on, you know, fill in the blank of whatever kind of, you know, save the world mission I was engaged in that day. Um, <laughs> like before I learned how to take off the superhero cape and just like, you know, not be responsible for changing the world overnight. Like I, I couldn't even talk about these things with people, which meant that the uncomfortable conversations that could have, should have, would have happened had I been aware of my own hypervigilance never happened because people, they, they exit stage left or check out mentally. You know what I'm saying? And then that's it. Yeah. Um, so many things coming to mind. Uh, I think about 
the way we've set up sales as a profession to sort of run on vigilance and dopamine and cortisol and like all of this, um, like a stress caffeine, cocktail. nicotine, caffeine and know, nicotine, a competition, extreme like, sports, yeah. hunting metaphors, uh, sports metaphors, like all this sort of idea around like a high stakes pressure and competition. And when I really think about why I was so successful in sales, you know, I had no understanding of business jargon. I didn't know what a mutual plan was until my third year, but by then I'd done 30% of the company's first 10 million ARR. And I was like 23 blonde hair, like wearing no shoes in the office, like that guy from Mad Men. I mean, I was an absolute, I mean, outlier isn't the right word. I was, uh, I was like a paradox. I had no sense of, um, any of the techniques. I didn't get banned. I didn't know any of it, but what I did know was, um, at least in those first years, because I wasn't indoctrinated into sales culture. And even though I did have some hypervigilance, when I arrived at that startup, I was so in a state of love and care. And I really mean this. Like, I hope for anyone listening, like this is not like some, um, like we're not turning into a spiritual like podcast out suddenly, but when I would get on phones with, Percy, you could do whatever the fuck you want. On <laughs> well, I'll tell you this much. Um, for a very long time, it felt like we couldn't, I couldn't lose a deal. And I was like, okay, I know where category creating was marketing automation and mobile analytics, but I was doing something in calls that I can now recognize, which was I cared about the prospect as a person so deeply. And it was like this almost completely aromantic falling in love where my discovery conversations were like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, what, like, what's your dream job in this company? Do you like it here? You know, um, you know, what were you doing before this job? I mean, discovery at a human level is what love is to me is pure curiosity and care for the other person, what their dreams and motivations are. And I found that when it came down to feature by feature, even if our tech couldn't cut it, I had communicated such care on behalf of the organization and the care extended to me actually answering their questions deeply and admitting when we couldn't fulfill on something. Um, It was getting so deep in the technology that we were doing that I could actually do the integrations like a solutions engineer because I so much wanted to be a part of them kicking off with our software and thanking them. Cause I, I was so appreciative of the relationship we'd built, you know, that is not how I can work if I'm scared about hitting my number. And if I'm trying to hit activities levels, because for me, I would spend an hour and a half on a call with someone in Amsterdam because I just knew they were someone I wanted our, I wanted them to have our software so that they could see some amazing result for themselves. I don't know anyone selling that or training that. And I only did it out of ignorance because I didn't know any other way. I didn't know about like, you know, business timelines, make a commitment. I didn't know any of that yet. I just knew I loved and cared about people. And I just wanted them to succeed with our software. Well, I see why you picked the Jeff Bajoric episode on discovery. I know. Discovery before. Shout out Jeff. Before, yeah. um, like, okay, so everyone, Mercy, what we were chatting, what this is the second conversation today. At first was take care of business this morning. Um, and these days, by the way, where I get a double dose of mercy, everyone, these are, <laughs> these, are these are special days. So we're celebrating. Okay, that said, I during that conversation this morning, friends, I um 
Mercy was like, okay, so which of the episodes should I listen to? Right. We don't have a lot of time. And I was like, well, these are the two, like, I would think I would look at Ryan Walsh's transparency or the day Kong cracks the town code are great. And then we get on the call to kick us off today. And Mercy tells me everyone that she's like, I, I listened to the one on discovery and I, <laughs> in my brain in that moment, I was like, that is excellent. Like I would have done the same thing. And I made a note to like, I wonder what it was about. It had to have been the title, right? The double entendre about, you know, am I allowed to say it? it's a porno, um, but it's a little risque and that could have drawn you in too. But now I it see was his it face. was his discovery. <laughs> but you know what? I'm going to go so far as to say it was Jeff's face. I mean, really? it's honestly like you can feel who someone is, right? You, you just get a sense of someone. I looked at everyone. Everyone looks great, by the way. But I just said, okay, there's something here that I, I don't know. I was intrigued. And I saw the word curiosity and I saw the word vulnerability. Yeah. And, and what I, the and promise of yeah. me how much you love discovery too. So I would venture to say that. To, and for those that have not listened to the episode, friends, we talk about how discovery <laughs> is the biggest when when Jeff in his experience when he looks at those that are maintaining uh I I don't know like I know there's an overlines on like oh top performance and I only mean that as someone that has worked through the hour count to develop mastery right that's what top performance means for me especially not just like a one and done we're talking about maintaining it over a decade type of maintain Jeff that said, Jeff, as someone that did maintain and now works, I, I mean, just who doesn't know who this like amazing human being, the gift that keeps on giving human is, but he says that Jeff says that discovery is the thing that he's found that is the biggest differentiator between one percenters and those that have not arrived there yet. And to your point, Mercy is even if you had come up or been raised in a, like a traditional um, sales or tech sales space, which air quotes, I'm like, what does that even mean? Um, but, but they, they, there's a very small likelihood that discovery would have been covered in the manner that you're talking about, or that Jeff and I are talking about on that episode, or frankly, the way that all of us that get it at some point or eventually get there arrive at most of the time by ourselves. You know what I'm saying? Right. But here's where I diverge from maybe the episode, which is like, okay. I'm less curious. The thing I'm really curious about is why aren't we doing it? And like, why does sales conversations, why do they feel so transactional? Okay. I would say we're not in a state of wellness where we feel safe enough to actually be in human to human conversation. Um, and I'm all for like these you know, gong and all these technologies tracking us and understanding us like fine, but like to bring the humanity into conversations, the curiosity and the compassion I need as a human being to have a base level of, of sense that I'm cared for, like in that I'm okay. And that I'm safe. And I don't know many sales leaders who are creating that type of safety because most of us have been, you know, brought up on like you figure sink or swim, figure it out, get it done, make it happen. No excuses coffee's for closers. Greed is good. Like insert any other. Oh, I love that. I could movie. do that all day. Yeah. I could do it all day. I want a Gordon Gecko tattoo, but, but like to be like subversive, you know, oh but I, God. I love him. It's so funny. You say that. So I'm, I'm experimenting with lots of different things related to sound, as you know, as an, as a, an expert that has the fucking a bang up. <laughs> 
like a mic holder over there. Like, just like I'm watching you pivot with it. I'm just like the jealousy continues to flow, but the good kind of jealousy. Um, but anyway, so that said, I'm working on something that is a movie clips. So I'm, I'm merging movie clips. Like there is no spoon, but also some Vince Lombardi, right? Gentlemen, this is a football. Yes. So fundamentals. And it's like a mashup between anyway. Um, I, I've got to, I have to, I'm making a mental note to add this movie clip to the, what Definitely is it, add, is it so coffee for closers? That yeah. You so about? there's two Alec Baldwin, okay. um, the coffee is for closers yeah, yeah, um, yeah. clip. And then there's a uh, wall street is this movie and Gordon Gecko is played by, oh my gosh, he married Catherine Zeta Jones. How can I remember his name? Oh, Michael Douglas. Michael Douglas plays Gordon Gecko. And it's an absolute like villainous piece about greed. I always seen the movie. I, yeah, okay, I'm embarrassed good. to say how much time I spend watching movies, but I love them very much. Um, what, what was the quote in, in uh, Wolf of wall street? So I don't know if it was, Oh no, it's just called Wall Street. This was Wall back Street, in the eighties, right? Oh, and, the, and the speech goes, and you should really just splice it in. I mean, at the risk of getting, getting in trouble. Oh, I'm, I'm willing to roll the dice. You heard my legal disclaimer. <laughs> I have, <laughs> I have, I have someone working on covering my ass, but he's. So, so okay. if we, we could replace this, I would say there is a word that's better than greed because greed is um, almost like the, the one it's like a choice, red pill, blue pill. What Gordon Gecko says in Wall Street is greed, for lack of a better word, is good because greed works. It clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. In all its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge has marked the upward surge of mankind. Now, I agree that the idea of hunger for is the driving force. And for sales, it has been predominantly money and standing. To me, those are like the games of ego. Money comes and goes. Out yeah, of, like why, money. That's what, a, money what a chump. What a chump I would be if I based my entire sales career and my entire job performance on those two things. But this idea of um, greed for life and for love and for knowledge, meaning taking care of myself, that's life. For love, like creating relationships that are meaningful with others, friendships, colleagues, uh, clients, customers, whatever bosses, and then knowledge, you know, deeply you have this Amy, like it's this deep, deep, almost unquenchable thirst to learn and to understand. Wait, so I do or the, that you, Oh yeah. You. Okay, yeah. So I'm saying like those fundamentals, I like those parts of greed. L the money part would come if life, love, and knowledge we're thirsted for by sales leaders and teams, the way that we thirst for the money, the way we thirst for the, the material. So here's the thing. I, so I 99%, that was beautiful. Thank you for reading that yeah. in such a gorgeous and professional way. And I, I can't that. wait to figure out how to splice it in with all the things LOL. Uh, with, with, with my new descript tool. I'm not like physically removing at, um, although like, I know exactly what the, what the, audio looks like when I use the word, um, like I can't, I don't even have to listen to it or see like I'm, but you know the wave, you know, the wave of an, um, <laughs> the peaks and valleys. Um, okay. But that's it. I'm excited to use Descript, which will be a lot faster anyway. So, and more fabulous that said, I'm going to push back on one aspect of that. Love it. Go as it relates to the money part. Mm. And this is where I, 
so we we just mentioned this for the first time I, when I talked about the moms groups teaching kids about money. So my first, so my dad has a financial services brokerage, and I was, um, I mean, he still to this day is producing like the most exceptional training and empowerment programs for sellers, like period end of story, my cousin or my niece, my nine-year-old niece, niece this summer, like I, I showed her Canva so that she could learn how to teach herself. And she was paid this summer to do decks for my, for my father. And so it's like next generation is continuing on, right? So she's learning how to love learning as well as use it to help others and get paid, which is full circle. Now that said, when I first was working with when I realized that politics wasn't for me, which since you listened to the, which is episode one, right? So I'm going to skip over that. I shifted into sales very intentionally and then working with financial services, right? Money. That said, money, it's when you're working with money with it, and I was B2B and B2C. So working with companies on wellness programs and, and I was with junior achievement in inner city high schools, but I was able to tap into a passion about how the majority of people from, uh, like I went to American University, I was there on grants, right? I won a model Congress competition. I was incredibly privileged in that I was at a school that allowed, that gave me access to this competition even. So let's start with that. And then the second was I, I am that competitive really. And also it was, I was at risk of physically not graduating from high school for skipping homeroom too many times because I didn't have a lot of respect for the school board. I wonder why that was, but every time I won, it was like a legit reason to, okay, whatever tangent we can delete. But it wasn't money. Well, but here's the thing. Yeah. I, American university in 2005, when I graduated the, the tuition cost Mm. private school was $36,000 a year that, you know, how, what is that almost 20 years ago? Right. So now what you get to talk about inflation and how education and healthcare are one of the two sectors that have, you know, outpaced inflation for a variety of reasons, mostly politicians beating on the um, drum, but that's a different conversation. However, I, we, none of us had any of the conversations about loans, all of my friends, like friends from college until after the graduation ceremony, it was just something that nobody even thought about. And in that moment, everybody started disclosing. And there were certainly like, there was, there was money that, you know, so there were some people that were, you know, this was not a thing, but I, I had a bunch of friends that one after the other, after the other told me that they had over a hundred thousand dollars, triple digits, six digits of loans for a bachelor's degree now. And this was taking place before people started talking about it. So guidance counselors were still their success proxy was the amount of kids that you get to go into a four-year institution, how that happens, be damned. Parents are still thinking like I had loans for college, like why my kid could do that, but without taking into account the obscene, like this is you, you've now have acquired a mortgage, right? Before you even started. And so it was almost like a lost generation, not a whole generation, but for the first five years of millennials, this was across the board. And so I was pretty pissed about that. Um, And so I got into teaching, like I was very focused on how do I get teaching kids about money? How do I, how can I make that be a thing? And how can I find the win-win Stephen Covey style so that I can, and I tried a bunch of different ways to 
do so like with college planning workshop, like whatever. But it, what ended up sticking was the how money works for kids and marketing it to mom's groups right across the state ended up being picked up by whatever. Now, the point of why this was even brought up in the first place is that my, I spent a lot of time studying the psychology of money and you want to feel like, and you want to talk buying decisions. Like you think it's, you think it's risky as a B2B. So like start talking to people about their money, start having interesting conversations with spouses that are hiding things from each other. Like it, it with work in work scenarios where like partners are, and it's like love languages, you know, how everybody has real or learning styles. It is so wrought with emotion and stigma and also avoidance. And, um, the, anyway, money that said, so what, what I, what I'm now to connect it all back money is just, it's, it's a benign thing. It's like, it's like fire. It's like water. It's a, it's a tool. tool. There we go. Yeah. For good I'm melding. Yep. And it can be used for evil. And it's a way it's a, in the same way that I think mercy conversations are how we experience ourselves, right? When, how we show up with other people for other people, that is it, how we experience ourselves and all the more reason to lean into uncomfortable conversations, but money, this idea that money as it relates to selling is a negative thing is, is one that I would, but here's how I did. Yeah, go ahead. I'm going to, what I did wrong by the way, because I, I got off in my twenties by making more money than people in my age bracket. Right. So this was, and I use that desire to maintain a performance or here, how about this one? I gave up listening to music for a fucking year. I love music. I gave it up for a year to early in my sales career so that I would, I was only listening to books on tape. It was CDs actually. And all nonfiction, right. I didn't even allow myself any fiction. And so like you learn and you, I, I use that love or that, that motivator personally for me as a special snowflake to make really strong decisions that then allowed me to bring more value, but it was all commingled in half of these things are not accurate, right? It was not healthy to put my self value on how much money I was making. Like that was a, not a healthy, um, way to operate. And I had to unlearn that one. And in fact, I overcompensated. And so then I had to unlearn how to (laughs) not overcompensate, um, after the fact, but, and so I share all that friends just to maybe possibly save someone somewhere. If anyone is trying to figure out their relationship with money, as it relates to their performance at work and, or finding the value in, you know, making a lot of money, economic participation. And then how do we use that to give back to the community or to the profession in a way. So it reinvests those high earnings as sellers, as tech sellers back into, uh, you know, doing the right thing, which is another way to kind of hack some of the value judgments we place on money, but you were going to say something, Mercy, please. I, no, I, I think I've been no, this is so it's very powerful. And money is a, is a loaded subject. I still stand by that. It can't be a destination. It's a tool. My destination, my, my goal would never be to just hoard like power tools and hammers and pieces of wood, right? I would want a house, right? There's something bigger that is built with money. 
So having the connection and I agree, like not enough money literacy, too much weird avoidance and like, just like emotionally wrought sort of subconscious dealings with money. We all deal with money in such like subconscious ways, but I can't go into my work and say, I'm here to make X dollars point blank period to feel good enough. No, I got to have a goal. And for me, it really is often something related to others. Like I'm one of those, all the best ideas, all the best work I do is not motivated by a, is by motivated solely by personal gain. You know, when I was trying to make all my money, I had a goal in mind and it was bigger than just me. And of course, like money to pay for things and have financial security, but it wasn't like, I want to make this much this year, period. There was always sort of like an umbrella, something bigger, um, something almost on like the philosophical or kind of like it was on the scale of ideals for me, things that were important. I was all about like this idea of rewriting generational rewriting my, my family's story. That was what, what drove me my first three years selling. And it happened to manifest itself in this goal of building, getting a house, right? That was like a goal. And I needed money to do that. But the goal was the house. And the real goal was like changing our family's story of eviction, of instability, of short-term investments. And ultimately of like, just not ever feeling really like safe, so safety was the goal. And then money happened to help make that. And by the way, spoiler didn't work. Um, usually material shit doesn't work. No matter how like fucking nice we make it sound. It like doesn't work. If anyone wants to know it doesn't work, talk to 23 year old Mercy who had so much money coming out of her ears and like could not have been more sad, could not have drank more scotch, could not have been crying at more bars, could not have had less things solved purely with money. That's not to say money does not solve problems, does not solve my fundamental problem. My joy, my safety is like, is not simply and solely attached to material items. Unfortunately, I wish it was. Wish I just could make enough to feel good. <laughs> Be so nice. <laughs> I mean, I we could do this all day. And I didn't know you were. I I I liked scotch too. And I, but at the same time, you're absolutely right. It. <sighs> okay, so I'm gonna pivot us here. Cool. What you're working on. Actually, why don't we talk about just our story and then take care and, but, but I want to create, I want to define some terms. I almost want to scope out like what wellness is not. Um, but anyway, we can come to that. So why don't we talk about how you and I met first and the nature of our relationship, not first, but here at the very end. Um, and then, you know, if worse comes to worse mercy, I will just like sing the praises of take care, um, <laughs> from the rooftops before, during and after all the episodes. So like, just know that that's coming listeners and it's worth the wait, but I, I think it's, it would be fun to give everybody a window into you and I. Okay. Well, I'm obsessed with Amy. Let this go on the record. Um, this is why I want to do this everyone. Cause I, I know yeah. Yeah, she's a Leo. Like, she's a Leo. I recently asked her a birthday. So she no, must it's cancer. Uh, cancer. Oh, yeah. that makes you um, nurturing. That's why you're so, okay. 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 I'm not even nurturing. Right. Yeah, okay. uh, no, you are. Don't even try. Don't even try. So here's my experience. I can only speak for myself. Um, first off, shout out Andy Paul for introducing us, right? That's who introduced us on email. And I looked up Amy and I said, Oh wait, no time for me. And somehow you magically made time for me. And my first conversation with you, I don't remember what we said, but I left that call feeling for the first time, like there were, um, 
like there were people like going the opposite way in the current of sales. Like it felt like you were swimming in an opposite direction in the most positive way. Like it was a conversation that I couldn't feel an ounce of transaction, an ounce of agenda. I felt only like an com- incredible commitment to actually not leaving a profession that can be so ugly, can be like to really sticking around and making a difference. Um, and then not in that corny way either, like that real way. And um, that was my first impression of you. Also great hair. <laughs> I saved the email that you sent me after that meeting and it, I've looked at it a couple of times since, because when you're swimming upstream like that, 100% of the time, you have moments where, you know, these words are, and things anyway, the email, I wish I had it up to read. Like you were no, able to no, just pull up the board and get pause. You're going to finish that sentence. Whatever you were about to say was very important and you chose not to say it, but I'm going to ask you to finish it when you're swimming up upstream. There's not a lot of, okay. So this is a double entendre. There's a couple of reasons you're right. Why I chose not to say it, but, but I, and I'm going to, right. But the thing is that I don't, I have part of my mental health journey as a old as fuck, right. Approaching 40, like I'm moving towards senile every day, but I'm, I'm still 37. And, but so that's where it's at. That said, I have since learned how to I was forced to learn, or I would still be in a puddle on the ground, how to cut the remaining ties, very human ties of needing and wanting, chasing, seeking, craving external validation. It's just, it's not something that I, 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 and and I've never experienced anything more liberating and powerful by being able to, you know, turn inward towards like the inner citadel stoicism, um, calls it the inner, uh, inner citadel. But so that's the thing. So when I'm saying everyone, it's, it's not about validation, right? So what mercy wrote to me after this first meeting, it wasn't like, I didn't know these things or, or like what you said to me was, was news to me or, but it, it wasn't validation, but what it was, was a reminder, but also a hack that when I'm in my lowest moments, right? My dad, like obnoxiously, right? He, we, their dad is something. And it was and most of the time that I heard them like ad nauseum as a teenager, I wanted to kick him in the teeth or sorry, sorry, dad. However, there's a lot of truth to a lot of them, but one of them, when I didn't, Amy, you will never feel yourself into a better way of acting act first and better feelings come. And when you're sitting on the couch, like procrastinating on college applications or whatever, I whatever fill in the blank uh, daily, it was a new thing. Like all of us, I wanted, there was a lot of feelings of wanting to kick him in the teeth, but he was fucking right. And one of, so what I, what we need to do as human beings in order to act, like what kind of action should we even take when we're feeling at our lows? For me, one of the things that works is to go to a file where I've saved things like this. I actually I haven't saved it. Like I, I'll run a search okay, for your can name. Can you save it? Let me read it to the listener. I'll write, I'll run a search for your name. So Maria, like there, there are so, and in these moments when I feel doubt, when I feel 
insecure, when I feel not motivated, when I feel overwhelmed, like all the things that we've all feel, right? But some of us are working on learning how to do it anyway, feel the fear and do it anyway. I look at these words and this helps me take another baby step in the right direction in that moment so that I can continue to swim upstream and bring value and offer. And I can't, I love that you called me out on not being nurturing. I say that often that I'm not nurturing. Oh, Maybe it's, I'm just bullshit. more choosy. Yeah. But it's such bullshit. I will never let you All say right, that. So read it. Yeah. Read the, so, read the email. Yeah. So I'll try to, I'll try to represent the number of exclamation points with my tone. But the first one is Amy. This is my dream to be mentored by an unapologetically powerful and brilliant woman in sales. I don't have words to express my gratitude. Lies I did, but capital, all capitals. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Three exclamations. Um, and I meant it actually after that conversation, I was filled with a sense of, um, overwhelm because I think what has happened is I've generally thought, uh, like there's only three people who work in sales who think similar to me. We're all alone. Yeah. We're, and all, we're alone. all alone. Yeah. And we're not all alone. We're not. And just because the most, maybe just because the loudest voices in sales or the, um, echo, echo chamber. Yeah. There's an echo chamber going on. Like, Wait, I, you noticed that too. I thought, Oh, I thought that yes, was just yes, 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 Oh, Okay. Yes. No, 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 no. There's a definitely an echo chamber. And I actually don't care. Here's the most amazing thing um, that and I don't know if this is really, truly like anything scientific, but it feels scientific. When I put stuff out there and we start to take bolder action, I meet people who are putting themselves out there and taking bolder action. And when I try to swim with the current and try to play in the, you know, in that echo chamber, um, I feel actually lonelier. I might only meet two people a year who are really vibing with me, but that feels actually like I'm less alone than being with a thousand people who I secretly know are just parroting each other. And I would much rather play this game of being scared shitless all the time. I would so much rather. Is it even a secret that we're parroting each other anymore? I think it's a, it's, it's the egregiousness of the continued echo chamber or the lack of questioning on the way that things are, are go, going down across the business of sales, tech sales in particular, um, the lack of questioning of the harm, the, the, the human beings that we burn through on both sides, right? Uh, air quotes on the, you know, underperformers and top performers alike. And, you know, friends, for anybody that has not read my mental health article for Sales Hacker last year that started my relationship with Andy Paul, which then, you know, led to mercy. Again, not that many relationships of people that are swimming upstream. Andy How- is definitely swimming upstream. Oh, he's like the, he's so. the, he's the leader of the swimmers of upstream. Did we make a shirt with us as salmon, just all swimming upstream, like our little head, our little faces on like leaping salmon, you know, they like, wait, what do salmon have shepherds? Like what, who's I'm thinking Pied Piper, right. With a, <laughs> And it's funny. Cause Andy and I, we, we messaged about this one. Cause I, we were talking about millennials and I, I, I'm not, I'm, I can't disclose cause it's not hit, but I was like, Andy, like we, you, you have to understand, like when you say it validates for, for us swimmer upstreamers and 
corrals and mercy. Even when you said that, when Andy said that we should connect, which by, by the way, there was a second overlap there. There was RJ too. We had, so we both had, um, have been mentored by the great Roger RJ Jefferson, um, as well. And so, but when you said that Andy, that when Andy gives an introduction, right, this is something you like, you stop what you're doing and you take note or something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing, but it was, oh, yeah. and I, I, you said it and I was like, oh my gosh, like that was, I felt the identical way. And by the way, I also felt the identical way while you were li listening to Jeff Bajork does discovery. <laughs> I was listening to your talk, your, um, made it. Episode oh, yeah, the sales star podcast yeah. with, um, I, I texted the name, hold on, I'll, I'll just pull it up, but it was the woman that was fashion that she had, she was the fashion designer. Was oh that my LinkedIn? gosh. Shout out to Lisa, Lisa. Woo, what was last name? Sorry. She's amazing. She's incredible. Yeah. That was an amazing episode. Um, I check out made it sales star podcast. It's an absolute treat. All um, right. I'll link to it in the show notes that when you guys were talking, I mean, I, I like, I couldn't, there were so many things that were overlapped around what I was also where, even when you guys were talking about uncomfortable conversations, when you were talking about, I mean, just thing after thing after thing and mercy, it still seems to surprise me how we're saying the same things and have been before we met each other. And so what I, what I guess is the people that are now swimming upstream, and I used to sell this way too. When you're, when you're selling category defining things, which, which I think there's something to that, like being able, you have to be great at discovery. If you're going to make a category defining it, shit go anywhere. And yeah. so I, I too have always kind of sought out those types of roles. So maybe like, we gotta, we gotta touch more on this. Cause I think there's something here, category defining tech mm -hmm. and like, you just, you learn faster, um, based on like, there is no other way, right. There's no winning. Anyway, that said, um, it, the way that I was able to align with buyers that were ready for me, right. That not only they, I didn't have to spend it one ounce of energy during the sales motion, it, like selling the why change. And I, because the prospects that were starting, right. Or I was choosing to start opportunities with, so enterprise sales, right. So this is, these are big decisions, right. Um, and I like maintaining a, a you know, above 75% win rate. So not down with wasting eight forms of waste, like, no, thank you. Yep. <laughs> nope. Um, but I, would look at the words that people used. So possible champions. These are people that are writing. These are people that are speaking on conferences. These are the ones that tend to be givers and want to help others. But anyway, the words that people use and the way that they talk about things, there's so much insight there into which stream, which direction a human being is swimming in. And what I love about the great connectors like Andy Pohl that are aligning all of us together or introducing us behind the scenes is that this is one is too small of a number to make anything real happen. And more importantly, the, the arbitrary differences, not even arbitrary, the very real differences, white, black, brown, male, female, transgender, like these have been, we're all out of practice with 
having conversations, having experiences with people that are not like, like us. And, and, and that's, I think part of it is self protection, right? Preservation, right? Then we can think about social media and the implications of the anger that spirals there quickly. Um, but more importantly, to your point about, I don't care about debating the whys or the hows we got to this point. At this point, all I'm interested in doing is talking about what, what do we do now? And we have more in common, right? We all have trauma in our lives. We all have experienced harm. We all but we are all at different stages of our journey with how willing and able we're and vocal we're able to be, uh, and to use your words, what, what did you say? You just don't give a shit (laughs) about like the echo chamber, right? You just get to a point where you just, it doesn't matter anymore. I like, I know for me, like I am, I refuse to live in a world mercy where I have to make myself less smart to not, to cater to the insecurities or the ego or the lack of willingness to absorb questions or engage in curious conversation. Like I, I'm not going to make change who I am. Hell no. Period. Like any more ever. Like that's the, the, that's the, and this has been a recent development. Like I can't, the amount of energy that I have spent dancing from relationship to relationship, interaction to interaction, sussing out where somebody's like line is, but uh, about how smart I can be in a basic conversation. Like it's fucking exhausting. It's exhausting. And more importantly, guess what? I haven't died, right? By letting go of the desire to jump through hoops. And, but there's risk, right? Still, you know, as we're, we're trying to figure out how to make things work um, revenue wise on all the cool change the world things we're working on, including take care, both of our podcasts, the, you know, whatever this, all the, all the other fun stuff. So there's that, right? And it would be easier to take a $250,000 sales enablement director job at this point. Like, but here's the option. It would be harder to it's, I always say, sometimes I'm like resentful at my past self for taking the leap. Like I, you it's just not really, but a little bit like, um, it is like waking up. It's a little bit like Neo in the matrix. Like once you really know, you can never forget. And though, like it would be easier, it would be actually impossible right now like to go and do something that didn't feel like um, I was, at least for myself, where I was creating a whole new space for people to come. in everything for me is very spatial. Like even in my head, when I think about the work you're doing, I actually imagine you creating a, it's, <laughs> I don't know, like a new place for everyone to come. Because to me, it's like, uh, we are really trying to create new types of, uh, like learning, like new types of, but all that happens in a community and community has to be somewhere. So you're trying to like open up these spaces for people that aren't owned like LinkedIn that aren't owned, like, you know, you're creating like these new little universes. And I think that's really hard, but like, there isn't an alternative. You can't just go like walk into someone else's bubble filled with like power dynamics and like keeping you small and just be happy there anymore. You have to create spaces where like, yeah, everyone can be unapologetically smart. How about that? Sounds great. Talk about justice, intersectionality, because those aren't dirty words. And, you know, I do know. And it's funny, like, because when I think of my, about my, my time in politics or working on campaigns as a community organizer, and then 
the work, like I, when you said you went on my LinkedIn page, when Andy first said, and you said, Oh, busy. Like I've, I've kept on the DL what I've been doing all year. And so like, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, like, what was it about my profile? Like there was nothing on there that, that says to me busy, but also I don't feel the need to advertise, but between you and I, what this is, I spent seven months this year, co like de facto co-piloting Rev Genius with Jared, um, Robin. And, you know, when I look at the numbers and the, the trajectory there, right, to go from zero to 12,000 members, not just in nine months, nine months, not just members, but engaged members. I, so I love this. I, I I'm with you. I'm, I, I think hitting a new space, like I received that compliment. I received that prophecy, like, you know, yes, universe like that would, that's, would be ideal, um, sooner rather than later. However, that's, you know, so let's start with like get episode six up. <laughs> um, so, but that said, I, I want to hear about take care. I want to hear about like when you first told me, so this is what Andy, everyone, um, Andy Paul had said why I need to connect with mercy. It was, she's building something, designing something that has never been done and has to, but it has to do with it at events in a way, but it was still very hybrid. And it was, that was the extent of the information I got, but it was, you must, you must meet mercy. And then Mercy told me about the, the conversation that, sh that Mercy read the, that email that afterwards about, right? This is our first conversation. So when you shared Mercy about what you were working on, what your vision was, not just vision like pie in the sky, like this is the shit that is, we're, we're almost done with it. iteration A. Um, so it's not just action, right? Right action, because as we know, talk is cheap, but, you know, doing things, chasing after symptoms and solving print symptoms is also equally wasteful and gets us nowhere. And considering the lack of progress we've made on, you know, equality, justice, um, you know, all the things that have not changed, including, you know, action behind all the feel good statements made in support of Black Lives Matter when George Floyd was murdered, um, last summer. But, it, but again, nothing has changed since like those are okay. That's it. You're the opposite of all those things. This is what I heard in this, in this meeting. So tell our listeners, like, tell me about take care. Like, like I've never heard it or tell the listeners. And, and at some point, if you could also do the, what is the opposite of wellness? Just so you like, I, we learned in binaries and I think wellness and the idea of self-care, like I loved on the website, the new facelift that you put, like I, the explanation about what self-care is not was fantastic. And it gave me the idea for this question, but I think starting with what wellness is not like when we actually get into the wellness aspect of take care. Um, and I know you have a hard stop in three minutes. So like, yeah, no, 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 I got this. Um, You know, take care is what I hope to be the first of many successful experiments around giving ourselves as individuals and employees um, the autonomy back in defining what wellness is. You know, what's the opposite of wellness to me? Um, so funny. It's wellness as defined by like the consumerism looking good, feeling good, being top performing, all these like destination words. 
having small pores, being rich, being liked. Um, it's like when wellness is a destination and we're being sold it, it's really hard to achieve it. And yet when I give my, when I have the responsibility to define the word and I get to see it as a journey, something I'm on, don't really win at, but I have like goals that I've set. There's like just a feeling about the word that is well, like I, all I can say is the way we use well today is sick. And there's no amount of green juice. There's no amount of, um, you know, probiotic filled yogurt in the micro kitchen. There's no amount of paid time off. There's no amount of giving me subscription apps for mindfulness. There's no amount of any of it that will really promote my like true well-being. What about spa visits? Like, oh, but (laughs) what about like, does, is there a line there for, I mean, that that works for me, but I, I think consumerism has, and the weighted blanket, like I, I've. I haven't bought a weighted blanket yet because I refuse to participate in the consumer aspect of wellness, but I, I still really want one. Oh um, yeah. You're looking at like the number one former consumer of wellness. You know, when I worked in sales, there isn't a diet. There isn't an exercise program, a boutique gym in San Francisco. I wasn't a part of, there was no yoga self-development course, anything that I hadn't taken part in. I was so consumed with this idea that I could consume wellness and arrive in a state of constant and achieved wellness. And then life that's happens. not by accident, by the way, that's called advertising and marketing and living in a whatnot. So the Western society, obviously we are, uh, we like things, right? That's yep. a thing. And sh- I like shopping retail therapy. I-, I don't have debt. Right. So it's not like that. However, it's too easy to hop into now Poshmark and you can even be like, so we're up against a big, we're up against it, but here's why I have hope for, for lack of a better word. Um, the same thing that fuels all that advertising of like consumptive wellness, which is the media also produces something that uh, is incredibly special and different. And it's, um, it's stories. And I mean, like I'm talking the content that moves us, that cracks our heart open, that completely creates paradigm shifts. I don't know that everyone has had this experience, but I'd like to ask the listener if they're, if they're hearing this part to think about a book, a movie, a television show and get specific the part of the book, the part of the movie, the part of the television show, that when you watched it, you felt an, I like to call it a fracturing of self, something that was true about the world suddenly became untrue or something that I used to think was untrue suddenly became true. It's like the moment when our perspective shifts and something opens up. Aha and it, moment. Yeah. That's yeah. Funny. Like just an aha moment. And actually we have them in business and we see when prospects have them and we ourselves have them. And so often it's like through pain in real life. They come through pain, near death experience, loss of a loved one. Um, for me, a bottom and drinking five years. Um, I just, enough was enough, but I do believe stories and storytelling can actually get us there too, because perhaps I've had books and movies and television shows and stolen conversations with strangers and unbelievable, like just moments of connection with family, friends, and coworkers, often while drinking, by the way, we'll talk about that another day, but like, there's something, I don't know anything. I don't know anything about that. We didn't have to, we didn't have to do entertainment to close deals in New York city. Like this is that, that wasn't a thing. Um, and I was a cool girl too. So like the, the, no, uh, never did that. But, but what's the secret here? It's like, it's funny. It's the same vehicle. The media uses narrative 
to get us to buy things for wellness. But the media also produces just like amazing stories. Like there are things on Netflix that just practically have no purpose, but to make you feel things and think about things differently. I would go so far as to say, well, it might all still be inside of the machine and corporate and whatever stories in and of themselves are how we make meaning as human beings. And I think that there's a whole new method to tell stories, to support people on their wellness journey. And I'm deeply influenced by five years of sobriety. I have grown up in a program um, of recovery that is based in people telling their stories uninterrupted without any agenda. And when I was in the pandemic, while so many of my friends who don't have any addiction issues or mental health issues were really suffering, I was lighting up inside. Amy, I was having the best Lack time of I've awareness, ever awareness, right? We all have things when it comes to mental health. So like, if we're still suffering, then that would be uh, exactly. arriving at step one, which is powerless awareness. Yep, exactly. So I, I had this aha moment with my co-founder, shout out to Alyssa, whose background is in event production. You know, my love is stories. You know, her love is really creating spaces where people can come. And we thought about creating a virtual space where individuals and companies and teams could go to hear stories that, you know, create those paradigm shifts around wellness. But instead of it being prescriptive, think about all the wellness virtual events we know of. Every single event is about hurting us from agenda topic to speaker to fireside chat to keynote. Everybody looks good, sounds good, is good, found it out, figured it out, going to tell you how, three-step process, tactics, strategies. And I think healing and I think wellness comes from the opposite of that, which is people just telling their stories uninterrupted, unscripted, and just the act of normalizing the journey, just the act of showing all the ways wellness and unwellness can look does more healing and more good for an individual than any amount of like, I don't know. I mean, anything prescriptive, you know, I uh, feel about belt sanders. Um, and <laughs> So here, like, okay, that is a beautiful thing. And then it's going to be a final question, but I, I have yeah. to say like, so the place that, the space that you're creating and yes. what the vision, not just vision, like pie in the sky, as I said, like the, it's been not only has it been a joy to have a new friend, Mercy, like one of the two people this year, like, or whatever, whatever the number is of finding someone that not as only, not only is swimming upstream, but like right there on par, like I balked a little bit in your email when you use the M word, right? I don't love that word because, uh, you know, the stigma, however, isn't it funny how fluid roles can be? Like, I feel like yes. there's plenty of times when you were, when we were talking podcast stuff, like you didn't even mention about the podcast work when I was talking about all my podcast stuff. And then I heard your, for the first time on made it and the skill, like the mastery really. And I just, I think I texted you like son of a fucking bitch mercy. You did not tell me how beautiful your own damn podcast was like that. It I, Okay. So that said you are mentoring me right in certain ways. And so I know, I know. There's yeah, a, there's yeah, a yeah. fluidness there, which I think is yes. a beautiful thing. And I, the learning for me was like, why I'm, I'm trying to balk less at that, that word. Okay. But so the balk less at the M word, which is mentor, but also Let's balk less at this idea that within a single company, um, we can have, you know, we can be each other's friend, you know, supporter, mentor, like all these roles can be fluid. Um, and when I think about supporting employee well-being, 
it starts with like peer to peers supporting each other, not just like managers responsible for each other. I mean, imagine a world where collectively we all just care about what's going on with each other. This is where psychological safety comes in. When you're not, when you do not feel safe yourself, which is most of sales floors, right? I like I, as shitty as it is, toxic is a word that can be applied pretty consistently. And it's now like venturing into criminal because we've been talking about it long enough as an, as a profession that, and nothing's changing like that. It's again, now criminal in my opinion. Um, but that said, I, nobody's asking me about my opinion of, of, you know, that, so we'll just leave it right there. This is why we start podcasts so that we can prevent. I love right. it. Well, that, take care is happening. Should I plug it quickly before I go for when it's happening? Yeah. What? Get the audio. Well, I'm going to say all this. So, but the, what are the yeah. dates? I'm going to talk about the uh, event space. Like I, one, one, so two things I know I'm so sorry. We're late. And I did a lot okay. of rambling. I, I, I pushed it five. I got, five. Oh, did you? Okay. One piece of advice for our listeners about uncomfortable conversations. Oof. What is named loses power. So when I'm having an uncomfortable conversation, I name the discomfort. I share the experience in like my body or my mind and it suddenly lessens. Holy shit. Like get out of my head, Mercy. Like that is, I, I, I like memorization. I think it's an underutilized thing. And when I was, when I switched to cognitive behavior therapy, then I, I, one of the first exercises was to memorize cognitive distortions. So like, I think 20 of them and black and white thinking one of them. That's my personal. It depends favorite. on which, which, which school, right. They <laughs> or catastrophizing or something, yep, catastrophizing, uh, like having names for them so that when a thought comes up and we all get them when, when I, when I was able to label it with the right thing, it then Oh, the power evaporated. And there's so much more to it. So that was brilliant. And I fucking love that piece of advice. Like I'm going to have to have you come on again. Um, but the second thing is now tell me about take for care, like the dates, what are the packages? I know that, you know, there's cool things and you're iterating. It's definitely a beta right now. And you're baselining behaviors inside the platform as it relates to wellness and great, great, great things are going to come. But in the current state, yes, how can absolutely. our take action? Um, depending on different roles. Okay. Fantastic. So take care is a rolling 30 day virtual wellness event, meaning you can arrive on day one, May 24th and get 30 days of access or arrive on June 22nd and get one day of access. It's a month long experience. Whether you come on the first day for all 30 or the last day for one, it doesn't really matter because the, um, the content we've produced is such that you could come for a single visit or really hang out. And you would get um, you would get enough value for your ticket. So, with that said, we've collected sixty recorded audio stories, talks, and sessions from people from all around the world, everyday people, experts, emerging authors, um, people who have stories on topics related to every facet of wellness. We're talking everything from gender identity to chronic illness, parenthood to grief stories between strangers. So we know they're not filtering anything. They're just bringing that like just raw kind of immediate reaction to each other and each other's opinions. It is probably the most diverse anthology we've ever seen as it relates to wellness. And in addition to getting those 60 recorded audio stories, you get access to artist interpretation to a select few. 
we know that when it comes to wellness and understanding and finding empathy and listening to each other, audio is but one format, visual, seeing it, seeing the story represented is another big part. So we've produced what we feel is like this really kind of textured experience, and it all takes place in a virtual house. So you can truly interact with the audio and the art in different rooms hand-drawn by an illustrator. Um, I want to just quickly plug for one thing, which is that this, this project is an experiment. We are baselining to understand what topics, what subjects are really top of mind for all of us with great respect to Gartner and all surveying tools and mechanisms to try to understand us. I don't think many of us answer as honestly as we could when we're kind of presented with a poll or a zero to 10 scale. But when all of us are in this house, we're all stating very clearly what topics we care about, sobriety, you know, um, okay, financial so, empowerment, all of it. It's all there. Mercy, I need for you to pretend like I'm a, like for our sales bosses out there or yeah. sales leaders, depending on how far we are on the make shit better, do better. Yeah. Um, where is the, I don't want to say value props, but why yeah, should I yeah. care? How, how can I look at or think about take care as it relates to some form of value? that I can bring to the human beings on my team and to our business because, you know, hint, hint, wink, wink, the source of productivity and performance is wellness. Um, Okay. So now sales leaders, why, why should they care? Or okay. One of the biggest surprises in us building take care is that some of our first signups were like 300 person revenue orgs, hedge funds, people with high pressure environments, those who are burnt out, those who are working around the clock. And when we asked them why they wanted to bring their teams to take care. It was because this was the first event they'd ever heard of that was both virtual and self-guided, meaning that teams could actually um, choose when they listened in. They could experience it on the go in between calls. They could self-select into topics that deeply relate to their performance, whether it's something like a conversation on mental health and sales, or really understanding how our early experiences guide the way we work and relate to each other, We even have a session that's fully focused on the ways and modes of listening. And like, these are things that can be brought into everyday work and absolutely shift performance. But the secret sauce here is that it is self-guided. Leaders are gifting their teams with the autonomy, saying you're the expert. And in that process of actually giving the independence, the voice, the choice, the freedom back to employees, you're making a really strong statement that they own their wellness journey. The last thing anybody wants is to be told how and when to be well. I think most of us have noticed we're all buying these really fancy apps and technologies for employees, not always with the high adoption rate we were hoping for. So our hope for sales leaders who believe that wellness is part of performance, that they're actually gifting it to their teams in a format where they're actually going to take part in the experience. Um, Yeah. Okay. So (laughs) uh, yeah, I'm going to add in all this stuff about like, I'm going to weigh in with my thoughts after. All right. But that said, you... What you're doing is incredible. What you're doing is different. You're trying something different, Mercy. And what I'm excited for your buyers, corporate buyers, right, of packages for their teams is think about the what you just described and then think about what the life of, a, of an SDR looks like for most in most places. So these are, when we talk about autonomy or lack thereof, 
due to, I think fear, right? You it's, this is why we're going to, we have stripped away all art, all creativity, and we are managing what human beings do down to the day and task. And so to invest in a fun experiment, like take care is almost like a baby step towards demonstrating through your actions that the human beings on your team are worth whose voices matter, whose stories matter, whose experiences matter, and I'm happy with this baby step, right? Buy a, t- a ticket for everybody on your team. And look at what happens should you need listeners, anyone in a situation or aspiring leaders or sales, but like wherever you're at, look at what happens when art and creativity and connection, right, are reintroduced. And by the way, outsourcing it when there's not the skills or the capacity or resources on the team to like do it in-house or the time really to do it in-house outsourcing it is the smart, brilliant move now. But the idea is that. Well, and, and if I can just add one more thing, Mm -hmm. um, we were so, so surprised that an, an, an event as creative and art forward as this would be actually attracting big three consulting firms or financial services or SaaS, like, you know, sales teams. We actually didn't Why anticipate were you surprised? that. Because I think I forgot that creativity and storytelling is something human beings want. And it's not actually an angle. You know, to us, I was thinking this event's going to attract creatives and just consumers. And then the realization that we are so tired of being herded through agendas we are so tired of being herded through like, you know, fancy people telling us this is the way Propaganda, we are craving each other's stories. Mm-hmm. And in it, actually in work environments, what we're hoping will happen in this grand experiment is that we're going to be building a group of facilitators, you know, internal, internal um, community builders who want to take select stories from take care and allow those to be launching points to have different types of authentic conversations about well-being inside of the company. So in some ways, take care of playbooks, yeah. like, are there going to be playbooks and style guides on how you to mean f- style guides? Yeah, no, <laughs> what, one of the things we're working on today and no small part due to Amy's mentorship, sorry, Amy had to use the M word. Um, we really, we really decided that there was, um, there's always a person at the company who was championing take care from the get-go and that same person is going to be able to set up, you know, an environment, whether it's a Slack channel someplace in Microsoft Teams. They're going to set up a conversation. They'll have this kind of um, buffet of choices of stories with guiding questions and ways to really create meaningful discussion. And there's even a section on like challenges or habits or like activities that teams could do together, right? The idea is that the example of this, the, the event is self-guided and it is a solo journey, but there's no reason you can't take it with others alongside you. Okay. And Yeah. Okay. I've, I got to say too, so an additional value proposition, what I hear mercy is that an additional value proposition to the ticket for your person for, to the gift box. Are you still doing gift boxes? 
Yes. Yeah. Okay. So to the gift box, it gets mailed to each person on the team to be reminded that they're important. In addition to the improvement in performance and productivity that comes with the work and camaraderie and collective, you know, of working together towards wellness, which it's taking a journey with friends is a lot more fun than, you know, swimming upstream all by yourself. Um, But that said, on top of all those things, wait, Mercy, do not buy yet. (laughs) The part of what you're describing with the facilitator guide, style guides, the train the trainer and the community for facilitators is that you're leaving the forest greener than you take care is leaving the forest greener than you found it in that the company has a legacy human being that is able to facilitate storytelling, sharing connection, health of like, I don't want to say improve growth is, is not the right word. Improvement is not the right word, but yeah, I guess growing human beings as human beings, being able to disassociate from an outcome as the source of happiness or joy and really lean into the process. Like that is having a facilitator, a trained facilitator yeah. on the job that stays at the company that can then train other facilitators. That's like the fucking gift that keeps on giving. And frankly, you know what, guys and gals that are listening, Mercy, like she's not letting, like she... I, I don't think she's charging enough for that gift that keeps on giving. So it's the, again, the training, the trainer of facilitators yep. to be able to continue the conversation after the fact, because how many wellness apps and tools or like, our HR teams buying mercy? Like, and yep, exactly. So there's the peripheral pr- tech does not solve the human problem. Humans solve the human problem. And the trick is there's nothing to actually solve. There's just this idea of normalizing the journey. You know, I think about the idea of sobriety, you know, an employee drinking isn't actually the problem, right? It's them not having a space in which to share and to sympathize and connect with and gain, you know, it's all about creating spaces where people can just actually share, connect. And I, I actually think companies are approaching the wellness journey. Like it's a problem. Versus it simply just being about facilitating spaces in which employees can be on it, connected and normalized and actually understand like wherever they're at is okay. Huge part of seeing an employee as a person. It's okay. I, you are the best. This is the best. I'm going to write, like, I'm so excited that the listeners get to hear everything. I, and I know you got shit to do. So go have a great rest of the Thank day. You so like I can't, you are so, oh my gosh. Um, my bye friend, bye. my great friend, have a beautiful day. I'll talk to you later. Bye. Oh, bye. Thank you. Thank you.